Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Are being Christians it means that we are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. And it's from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you are eagerly awaiting the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Titus 2. For by grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting eagerly for the blessed hope, which is what? the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or 2 Peter 3. It says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, speaking of the things of this earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The answer is, we are waiting eagerly for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting eagerly for what? The new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Or Jude 21. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting eagerly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Brothers, sisters, friends, guests, what is it in your life that you eagerly are awaiting? What is that is the greatest hope to which you've set your heart and your life and your agendas and your purposes unto? What is it that you eagerly await? Is it retirement? A spouse? Your first million? The big promotion at work? So that your artistry would finally be seen and heard by those around you? These are all good things, brothers and sisters. But the Word of God calls us as His people to eagerly await for what is the greatest treasure we truly believe is out there. The appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom on earth. A century ago, Charles Spurgeon, a famous London preacher, says this, Our seasons of fasting and prayer as a church have been high days indeed. We have never been nearer to heaven's gates and are never of our hearts been more near to the sensual glory. You see, God's heart longs for us as a church to be nearer to his central glory. To be so near to his glory that we burn with the zeal of Jesus for his name and those who are perishing among us. The next two sermons, both today and next week, stem from part of your elders' deep desire to fan the flame of the faith of this church. 
You see, our passions and our cravings as individuals, they often mask and even subdue because of the things of this world that only temporarily satisfy, but never truly change us or satisfy us. We can often and quickly begin to self-medicate with the things of this world. We do this during times of difficulty and times of pleasure. We self-medicate with things like food, movies, or any other variety of things from the table of this world that we like to eat. And a cultural landscape dotted with shrines to the golden arches and whatever pizza temple you go to, fasting is one of the most often forgot concepts by churches. Fasting. So today, I would like to remind us of one of the glorious disciplines of our faith and why it is profitable for us as a body to be called into some corporate fasting together. We desire what Spurgeon desired, the central glory of God, to be the centerpiece of our existence, to be the fuel that ignites our every step. If you're a note taker, we have two simple points today from the book of Matthew. First, fasting is a display of the longing for the coming bridegroom and for more of him until he returns. We see that in Matthew 9. The second point is this, fasting also serves as a tool to reveal the things that are truly controlling us. And Matthew chapter 4 will help us to see that. So would you open with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew in chapter 9 is where we'll spend our first point. Again, if you do not have a copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to grab that black Bible there in the pew in front of you. You'll find our text today on page 814. 814. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a record, a recording of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see in the Gospels, they tell us that the Son of God was incarnate. He became like one of us, born of a mother's womb, a virgin's womb, and lived among us. And that for 30 years, he was there, functioning, living, rejoicing, delighting, and glorifying God with complete obedience. And then the final three years of his ministry, he began to live out and declare who he was and what he was bringing about. He had these guys that would follow him around, the disciples and many other followers that were there. And one particular time where they were all sitting down together, eating, this discussion in Matthew chapter 9 happened. So look at the text with me. Matthew chapter 9, start with verse 14. Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, came to him, Jesus, and they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the new skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. We see here Jesus having a discussion with the disciples of John. And the disciples of John acknowledged that fasting was not a new thing. That this was actually a concept that we see throughout the Old Testament. That fasting was a normal thing. But before we really dig into that, I want to give you some warnings. 
warnings about fasting that I do think we see throughout the Bible as we dig into this text. First warning is this. We must understand that biblical fasting always has spiritual purposes of heavenly importance. Not just earthly importance. There's nothing wrong with fasting for someone to be healed. There's nothing wrong with fasting for the answers or direction. But ultimately, fasting's design and purpose is intended to say, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Jesus, we want you to come back. It's his primary emphasis. Some of the byproducts of those are the Lord reveals things of our hearts. He gives us direction, purpose. He does miraculous things. Richard Foster, a a wonderful author, says this, that fasting must always be centered on God. It must be God-initiated and God-ordained. Listen to Zechariah chapter 7. This is an interesting text. It's going to be up on the screen for you. It says, Say to all the people of the land and the priest, when you have fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Huh. If fasting is God-centered, then why would God, through the prophets, have to go to the people of Israel and say, why were you really fasting? Was it for me? If we were to continue looking in that text, we would see this text reminds us that God does not deal lightly with religious activities for selfish purposes. God does not deal with religious activities for selfish purposes. And unfortunately, I believe fasting to be one of those that has begun to be leveraged by the world as if then we can manipulate God to get what we want instead of God being the center. So I want to call us back to what the scriptures call us back to, and that being God at the center of our fasts. Secondly, listen to Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Jesus speaking again here, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that they are, um, they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. See, we must be reminded to use good things, even godly things, for our own purposes as is and always is false religion. So as, as you're being called by the elders of your church to fast, and we'll explain more about what that is exactly in just a moment, know that it centers itself on God. The call to fast is saying, God, you be magnified. It is not a tool to be used to manipulate, to give what you want. Instead, it is a desperate cry, God, you are our only hope. But did you notice in that verse, verse 17, It says this, it says, when you fast, Jesus is speaking to his New Testament disciples. And do you notice that when you fast, almost implying what? That they will fast again one day. Why do I say that? Because fasting is actually nowhere commanded in scripture. There is no command that says thou shalt fast. It's just not there. It's not in the New Testament. But it's implied because it's a discipline of the people of God from before the people of God began to be in Christ. See, no text commands us to fast. Instead, we must understand that fasting is simply assumed as a discipline of the follower of God. By disciplines, I mean things that we do intentionally to draw us closer to God. Scripture reading, prayer, fellowship among the body of Christ, and fasting is one of those very things. 
Scripture memorization. But how often do we actually fast? I cannot speak for you, but I can speak for myself, and it's not enough. See, fasting is a way of intensifying our longing for God. It's a way of fanning our flames of our hearts and our heart's desire for the things of God. It's a way of declaring, God, we want to know more of you, that we depend only on you. So can you be saved and never fast? Absolutely. Because it's not a command in Scripture. We're never saved by our own works. We're saved by the work of Jesus Christ. But listen to this question. Can you grow in understanding of the fullness of God apart from fasting? No. So if that's the pulse of your heart right now, God, I want to know more of you. I want to be more empowered for your work and for your ministry. Then the Bible would say fasting is one of the primary tools and disciplines that the Lord gives us to engage us in this world until he returns. So what is fasting? I've said it a bunch, and maybe you're like, Pastor Josh, I just don't even know what that word means. Does it mean I start running faster when I become a Christian, like I can get from point A to point B more quickly? It's kind of funny. I know it went a lot. Someone's crying about it. It was so bad. No, fasting is this. It's an intentional withholding, most often about food, for the purpose of displaying, God, you are my supreme treasure. It's a withholding of something intentionally, Primarily food is the one the Bible most often uses for the purpose of displaying your faith and testing your faith. God, do I delight in you as my ultimate treasure. Again, typically this is done with food, but it can, can be used of any good things like entertainment or coffee or chocolate. I encourage you to think about it primarily as food because it cultivates this physical, visceral reaction that the Spirit then uses to reveal those longings in your heart. But whatever you withhold from, during that time when you typically do those things, you were intended to use that time for prayer. An intense focus, an intense longing, an intense pleading that whatever it is that is controlling your life, whatever it is that is your greatest satisfaction would be replaced with God himself. It's a way to show our deepest desire that Christ, you are what we pursue and what we want most. Did you notice in the text, Jesus uses two metaphors? Unshrunk cloth and an old cloth, new wine and old wineskins. Did you notice that back in chapter 9? Look at it with me. So the question being asked is the disciples are saying, Jesus, I mean, we fast. We're, we're disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fast. But we see your disciples and they do not fast. So while Jesus was on earth, his followers for the three years that they were following him, they did not fast at regular intervals at like the Old Testament people did. And these guys were like, why? Why, 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 why? why did they not fast in Jesus? It was such a regular part of our Old Testament and Levitical law that we should be doing this on a regular basis. Look at Jesus' words at verse 15. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Wow. What did Jesus just call himself? The bridegroom. And who are the wedding guests? Everyone there. 
We're pursuing Him. And they're saying, so fasting has to do with this longing for the things of God, for Christ Himself. Now, the Old Testament, when they would fast, they would say, come Messiah, come. Please, redeem us, your people Israel. Messiah's there. And he is working out his redemptive story through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And Jesus is like, there's no need to fast. Why? Because I am here. The kingdom is on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. But then look at the next line. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. What's he referencing there? His death and his resurrection and his ascension to the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm not always going to be on this earth physically. There is a season I am here now to bring about the work of salvation for my people, and then I'm going to be gone. And then look at the next line. When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they, what? Will fast. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is teaching, he's explaining to John the Baptist's disciples, but also to his disciples and us, that when he dies and is resurrected and ascends to the Father, then we begin to fast again. We begin to cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come again, restore, renew. But it's not so that he would save us. Instead, it's a celebration of what he's already done. And this is why we see this analogy, this two metaphors between old and new. We see it in the old unshrunk cloth and the old garment, the new wine and the old wineskins. Jesus is using two metaphors here. The unshrunk cloth and the new wine, they go together. The old garments and the old wineskin, they go together. Jesus is saying that the representation of the fasting is being changed from the Old Testament way. Something new, a new type of fasting is coming, and you don't attach it to these old promises. One pastor says it this way, the patch of unshrunk cloth and the new wine represent the new reality that, what, that has come with Jesus, that the kingdom of God is finally here. The bridegroom has come, the Messiah is in our midst, and this is not merely temporary. And he is not merely here and then gone, but the kingdom of God now is permanently on this earth. How? For a professing believer, if we've repented of our sins, believed in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit has sealed us, guess what you are, brothers and sisters? You are the kingdom of heaven on earth. You are the representation of the Messiah. You are the representation that what Jesus promised he would do, he does. Yes, Jesus died once for sins, for all who would believe. And then, yes, he rose again from the dead for all who would believe. And the Spirit was sent into the world as the real presence of Jesus in his people. The kingdom of God is reigning through his people. He is the one who has subdued our hearts to love him as king, trusting him as our savior. And he has created a new people who serve him until he returns again. This is huge. Pay attention here. You are saved not just to get into heaven. That is one of the byproducts of our salvation. We make it into the presence of God. We are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. If that was the only purpose, then the moment we repent and believe, we'd be zapped out of here. Why were you not zapped out of here? Because you've been left 
to be the kingdom of God on this earth. To declare King Jesus with every ounce of your being. To not sit at the table of the world anymore, but show the world you know of a better table to eat from. It's why you're still here. And what is it about us as American people that we like the table of the world so much that we've lost the purpose of being here on earth still? And fasting is God's gift to His people to fan that flame in our hearts. Your kingdom, God, Your will be done in my life. I want Your glory to come. I want Your manifestation of Your new earth and new heaven to come, Lord. But till then, sustain me, use me. I depend on You. This is the new wine. This is the unshrunk cloth that's not attached to the old way. It's a new wine for a new type of fasting. God's people fast because we've been given a new heart with new desires that no longer focuses on self or stuff, but we focus on Christ and His kingdom. Imagine for a moment. Shelly and I just got the wonderful privilege to celebrate 21 years just a few weeks ago of being married. But I can't imagine on June 1st in 2002, Shelly walking down the aisle and, and us professing our love of each other and our rejoicing that God is in us together and the beautiful covenant of marriage. And then me saying, I'm, i got to go on a trip and I don't know when I'll be back. Can you imagine that for Shelly? If the bridegroom left right after the wedding. I mean, I gave her letters. Right, Enough letters where she knows all about who I am and the purposes of my life. I've given her all the resources she needs to make it through everyday life. But what will Shelly want more than anything else? Her bridegroom to come home. And that's us, Christians. We've been given letters from our Maker testifying to His work and who He is and His character and His purposes. He's given you every resource you need to make it through this life. But I don't know about you, but I long for my bridegroom to be with Him again. This is what fasting declares. God, your resources are great. Your word is beautiful, but I want to be with you. We fast, beloved, for our groom to return because we love his letters, yes, and we need his resources, but we mourn because he's not here among us in the flesh. Yes, we also mourn for a greater understanding of our part and our purposes on this earth. We cry out for a weightier grasp through the Spirit, how to fight this flesh and the world and the devil. We also fast, yes, because we want to see the fullness of God in our hearts and minds be amplified in our dependence on Him. This illustration by Jesus, this teaching by Jesus is showing us that there is something, yes, continuous in fasting, but it has a new direction. It has a new purpose. It's not, come Messiah, we need you to be saved. It's the Messiah's come, and we want more of him, and we want to be with him physically again. He's come. We rejoice and cry for more of his coming. Jesus was teaching that he will not be there the whole time. But then they will fast. Friends, guests, those of us, or those of you who are here, who are followers of Christ, 
we have already tasted of the sweetness of Christ. It's what salvation is. It's when we see our utter wretchedness and our inability to save ourselves. We see our rebellion and then behold Christ, right? The unveiling of our eyes, the opening of our ears and our heart. We see Christ and we taste it of his goodness. We sing that song. And so we've tasted, but not in fullness. And we want the fullness. So fasting declares, so brothers and sisters, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning, you do not claim to be a Christian or claim to have repented of your sins, fasting's not for you. Fasting is for those who have already tasted and want more. What I pray for you in this room, if you say, I'm not a Christian, here's my prayer. Your cry is this, God, show me my sinfulness and show me Christ and help me to believe. That's your cry. It's just as real of a cry as my cry. Come, Lord Jesus, I want more fully of you. But that needs to be your first. So if you're not a believer, fasting is not for you. The first step in our faith is to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus and we've tasted of him. Then we will fast. So if you're here today and you would not claim to believe in Jesus, I plead that you would seek someone out today. Even now as I'm preaching, cry out to God. Show me my sin. Show me Christ. Any one of us who are members here at Calvary would love to speak to you if the Lord is tugging on your heart. Brothers and sisters, this new way, this new wine that Jesus speaks of here is a new fasting. A fasting as people would do once he died, resurrected, and ascended to the Father. And now we long for, we want, we desire his return. But until then, we want to declare our dependence on him. But those of you in this room who have professed faith, that's our cry, right? That we would be those who fast. It's meant for you. It is a discipline of the faith. Is your faith stale? You know what I mean by stale. It's kind of lacks luster. There's not a lot of passion. There's not a really like, uh, I'll read today. But there's not like, oh, I've got to be with Christ today. Maybe you need to fast. Maybe you need to fast intently. Is your faith simply become routine and not no longer delight? Fasting is a discipline that will help. Or maybe you're like, no, Pastor Josh, I'm pursuing Christ, but I want more. Guess what? Fasting's for you too then. It's the beauty of fasting that it takes the weak and makes them stronger. It takes those who are still weak but think they're stronger to be even realizing they're more weak and they need more of Jesus. Fasting is a gift of God that fans the faith of our heart and puts on display we want nothing more than Christ. The first and primary call of fasting is to intensify our longings for the bridegroom's coming and more of him till he returns. But what's interesting is this isn't the only thing the Bible teaches us that fasting is for. That's the primary thing. The primary thing. But our second point, we're going to see this in Matthew 4 in another situation where Jesus himself was fasting. So flip would be the jet, uh, Matthew chapter 4. Here's the second point. Fasting also serves as a tool that reveals the things that control us. It's a tool that the Lord uses to reveal what controls us. So remember, what is fasting's cry? Lord, I depend on you alone. I want your return. I need more of you. And while we participate in that, the Lord, by his spirit, often bubbles up things in our lives and to our hearts and minds that are controlling us. 
whether it be pride, good things like sex, even churchy stuff. So when we fast, these things rise up to the surface, and once they do, they can be dealt with so that we might be transformed more into the image of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 4. This is the scene where Jesus has just been baptized. And the Holy Spirit and the Father we see in this beautiful scene in the end of chapter 3. And now it says in chapter 4, page 809, if you're in the Pew Bibles, read verses with me, 1 through 4. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we see Jesus has been baptized. right? And the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we see the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. And it says, then the Spirit led him to the wilderness. And if we're Bible people, we need to understand he's using this image to help us think of things. Wilderness, hunger, 40. What does this make us think of, brothers and sisters? The time of Israel in the wilderness where they too were tempted and tested. How many times did they cry out in the book of Numbers? Oh, Moses, you took us away from fish and leeks and now we've got nothing. Jesus himself is being tempted here. The Father was pleased with Jesus, according to 3.17. But then in 4.1, it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. We see here that Jesus is walking through a portrait of what the people of Israel failed in. Jesus is being allowed to be tempted by the devil. But what's so interesting, did you notice the words he used In verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. Does anyone know where that's from? Deuteronomy. Does anybody know what Deuteronomy is? It's Moses' recount of the wandering years and how the Lord tested and proved himself faithful. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But there's so many parallels, are there not? Deuteronomy 8. Matthew 4, there's a wilderness scene, there's 40 years, they're both led by God, the Spirit, there's a testing and the tempting, which are the same words. There's hunger. But what do all these parallel means? It means that Jesus was the new Israel. He was the better Israel. He was the better Adam. He was the better David. He was the portrait of what the people of God could not be on their own. He, through fasting says, I am actually bringing out a better new exodus. Not from physical bondage, but from spiritual damnation. I'm providing the exodus that you all so desperately lead. Not merely earthly pain and struggle, but for the bondage of sin and death. One author says it this way, To do this, he sent, speaking of the Father, a new Joshua. And the new Joshua stands as the head and representative of the whole people. On their behalf, he was now led by God into the wilderness. And it would be 40 days to represent 40 years. He would be tested as Israel was tested. But he would not fail. It's good news for us that we know in the midst of our testing, there is one who did not fail his test. So what is the aim of Jesus' fast here? And therefore ours also. 
One, Jesus is identifying with his people. Maybe you'd be like, well, Jesus, you never had a fast. I mean, I can't barely do a day. He says, like, brothers and sisters, I walked through the fast, and I stood against temptation on your behalf. He is identifying as the people of God. And he's displaying that his allegiance in those most difficult of times was God himself. Jesus made our hope in this life possible, and he set a pattern of dependence on God through this season of fasting and testing in the wilderness. What's amazing, though, is that fasting simultaneously deadens our appetites for the things of this world, and it deepens our longing for the things of God. Simultaneously. It deadens our appetites for the tables of this world, and it deepens our longing for the things of God. Pastor Josh explained it, like, does it have to do with, like, the stomach and the heart and the brain and how they're thinking? No, God supernaturally uses this gift of fasting to produce this work. That's why we're centered on God and it's dependent on God. Because there's things like intermittent fasting now that people use to help cut weight and trim weight. This is not what we're talking about. Remember, we're withholding from something good and even necessary, like food. And we're saying, God, we will do without because we believe you are more. You are better. You are glorious. You are good. And I want more of you and I need more of you. And God, by his spirit, uses those prayers and that physical gesture of our faith and does glorious works in us. Simultaneously deadens the appetites for the things of this world, but it also deepens our desires for the things of God. Look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is interesting. I, want, if you, I, don't, I don't know if I told them to put it on the screen or not. I can't remember. I don't think I did. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Again, this is what Jesus is quoting. And I want you to look at how this section in Deuteronomy goes. I think it's of extreme importance for us to understand this. Moses, again, is recounting right before the people of Israel were about to enter the promised land and he's reminding them of all the things the Lord's done of their journeys. Start with chapter 8, verse 1. It says, The whole commandment that I command you today shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you through these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know the man does not live on bread alone, but lives by every word of God. Wow. So there's a little bit more to it than just the words that Jesus quoted. Moses is recounting the, the time and the testing of Israel. It says, God let you hunger so that ultimately you would see he's a great provider. That he is the great provider. He says, I let you hunger, and then I gave you this manna, this bread of which you've never known, you nor your fathers. But I provided. And Jesus is being tempted by Satan to do what? Turn the stones into bread. Satan ain't no fool. He knows the story of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He knows God provides for His people when they're in need. He knows, and so He tempts Jesus 
Just go ahead. Just like God provided manna, turn the stones into bread. But Jesus is so much more wise. And he says, no. You missed the whole point of that testing in the wilderness, Satan. It's to teach you that man cannot live on bread alone. You cannot merely be sustained in your life on the good gifts of God. You must be sustained by God himself. Can we separate those two things? Yes, no, not really. We do, though. Let me ask you this question. If God didn't give the good gifts that you received from him, would you still trust him? Is he enough? Is he enough? Or have you placated to playing games with God? God, I'll rub your back if you give me this. God, I'll praise your name if you give me this. Our faith in Christ alone is displayed when we say no to the gifts of God so that we can declare, God, you are enough. Fasting is a pivotal part in helping us to see what controls our hearts. What is it that you delight in above all things? Do not hear me say that if you enjoy God's good gift that you are a pagan and that you don't understand God. No, that's not what I'm saying. Because we also see all throughout Scripture, be grateful for the things that he provides. Our God is the giving God. So we ask But at the end of the day, do you love his gifts more than you love the giver? Fasting is the means and the tool in God's biblical disciplines that help you testify, God, I love your gifts, but I love you more. I love you more. And I'm going to spend this time, this moment, this season saying, God, more of you, more of you. I'm withholding from some of his gifts in a way. So I caution us that we must be very careful not to do the same thing, to love the gifts and sideline the giver. What is one of the ways? Fasting is one of the biblical principles that God gives us to keep testing our own hearts so that we see what truly controls us, the gifts or God himself. Fasting helps us to see that we truly know and delight in God more than his gifts. We do not reject the good things of God. But they can never replace God himself as supreme. So I ask you to consider, how can fasting be incorporated into your life? This week, as you know, we are in the middle of a prayer initiative over the summer, and they prayed. We are on our third week of praying. We we prayed for confessing our desperate need of God in week one. We pray for the conversion of many in our community this week. And we're praying for the growth of God's people and deeper delight of him this week. And this Thursday, July 22nd, David and I, the elders of this church, are calling us as a church to corporately fast together on that day. To withhold from food from 6 a.m. Thursday morning to Friday at 6 a.m. Again, there's multiple reasons why you may not be able to do food, whether health concerns or even age. But we do ask you to consider not only that time, but then during that time, to use the times where you're normally eating to pursue God in prayer and in passion for his glory. Matthew 5, 8, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It's the only verse we want you to pray through. 
God, we want to seek you first in your righteousness, God, your works, your righteousness, your person, so that we may see your blessings flow through us and your people here. And if you cannot do Thursday, that's fine. Maybe you have someone come into your house on Thursday night, so you need to start on Wednesday. Do Wednesday. That's okay. Maybe you can't do food, and maybe you need to withhold from your time of entertainment and television watching for health concerns. Then do that as well. Parents, this is a wonderful time just to begin to teach your kids. Maybe tell them they have to have no TV that particular day and begin to explain why. Now, again, they can't fast unless they've tasted of the Lord's goodness, but you can begin to set this biblical principle in their lives. But above all else, we are not just withholding. We are praying intently during that time. We'll talk more about that next week as we look at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll pray for this. More of God, more of his kingdom, more of his righteousness. Seek him first. That he might be the power that ignites a flame inside this church where we will give our all for him no matter the call. This is the challenge of scripture. Again, it's not a command. But it is a discipline that will fan our faith to long more for him, that will help test our hearts to see what is controlling us. And we call you to participate in that with us if you see fit. As we close, let me ask you to think on these two things in our time of response. Take an honest look at your life. Think of the last week. Think of the last month. Does your life display is seen by others, could your wife, could your co-workers know that you love God supremely? That He's first in your life? Or are you just delighting in His gifts? If you find yourself saying, no, Pastor, I've been delighting in His gifts more than Him, praise God. Christ saves, Christ redeems, Christ has already atoned for that sin then repent of that sin and cry out to your Savior. Maybe you really need to be challenged to fast with us on Thursday. Secondly, spend this time responding this way, God, what is it that's controlling my life that's not you? What is it that's controlling my life? First question, God, do I love your gifts more than I love you? And the second question is, if I love your gifts, what's controlling me? The need for money. My pride. My fear of man. What is it that's controlling you? That God may use this week in our corporate fast to reveal these things in us and so that Christ might radiate in our hearts and minds and in our church in real ways because we want to pursue him and declare we trust in you as everything that we desire. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.